Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Drop Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. Our guest this February is Michelle T. Johnson, a playwright from Kansas City, Missouri, who is about to see her latest work, Justice in the Embers, go up on the stage in early February 2016. Justice in the Embers is about the five persons who were convicted for the 1988 trailer fire. Now, to give you a little bit of background on Michelle, she is a former journalist who worked as a newspaper reporter at the Philadelphia Daily News, the Louisville Courier-Journal, and the Austin American Statesman. In addition, she is a certified mediator who has practiced law in the states of Missouri and Kansas, a former employment attorney for two Kansas City, uh, Missouri law firms, including one of the largest in the city, and the author of three books, Blackout, Black Person's Guide to Redefining a Path Outside of Corporate America, Working While Black, a Black Person's Guide to Success in the White Workplace, and The Diversity Code, a text which goes beyond rules and regulations to show you how to make diversity more than just a set of requirements to be met. But wait, there's more. She currently writes the Dear Diversity Diva column, which is published twice a month in the business section of the Kansas City Star Daily Newspaper. Michelle was kind enough to squeeze us into her busy schedule. We started off by talking about the play, Justice in the Embers. In 1988, here in Kansas City, where I live, um, the greater Kansas City, Missouri area is what most people think of as Kansas City. Technically, I live in Kansas City, Kansas, which is right next door to Kansas City, Missouri. So it's a little bitty, a little bitty city next to the big city that everybody's heard of. So, right. you know, so um, in 88, there was a fire that turned into an explosion. The working theory by the by the police and the fire department at the time is that um, someone in trying to steal things from a construction site started a fire, which ended up causing an explosion, so that when six firefighters, Kansas City, Missouri firefighters, went out to take care of the fire, they were uh, killed. They were instantly killed. And nine years after that explosion which caused those six firefighters deaths there was a federal trial because as i said missouri and kansas are right next to each other so you can pretty much always make um something a federal case when it's a city right, that lives in yeah. another state exactly um there was a federal trial and five people were convicted and the youngest person convicted brian shepherd was 17 at the time this happened. Now, all five of these people who were convicted, 20 years later, they maintained their innocence. They have not wavered on their innocence. They pretty much were tagged because they were five people who hung out together as Brian, his two uncles, and his best friend. They were like, you know, petty little badasses in the part of town Uh where this all took place. You know, they, they stole this kind of Stupid stuff here and there. Still records. Oh yeah, criminal records, but nothing major, and nothing for arson. Okay. So, but but you know they were that's who they were, and so nine years later, mainly with a case um, stitched together by snitches, that's how they all got convicted, and because it was firefighters who died in the line of duty, right. it's. They received life without parole sentences, 
one of Brian's uncles just died in prison already. And the Supreme Court a couple of years ago, maybe a little less than that, have ruled that it violates the Eighth Amendment against cruel and unusual punishment for someone who was a minor at the commission of a, at the time of a commission of a crime right. to receive a life sentence with, without parole. But and he was an so, adult when he was tried. He was an adult when he was tried. So, but legally, legally, it's when you commit the crime that determines whether you're a minor or not. All right, so as an adult, he would have had to have been tried as a minor. Because he was it's, a minor at the time that the, the crime took place. He would have had to have been tried as a minor, but his sentencing would have had to reflect the fact gotcha. that he was at the commission of the crime. All right. And so because of that, he is the only one who has even a chance to possibly have a resentencing. And the, the bad part is for him is that there's now subsequent to that Supreme Court ruling there's been another supreme court case which hasn't been heard yet that says but is that other one retroactive or does it only apply to people who are sentenced from this point forward okay can you uh, elucidate that just a little bit well right now there are depending on how you count it there are approximately 2000 people sitting and life sentences are on death row for crimes that they would have had that they would have committed uh, when they were minors. Are, right. are they were convicted of committing them when they would have been minors? And so that's the court has to decide if if this means that those one to two thousand people right. sitting in prison get a rehearing, or if this just applies from this point forward. Okay, so. We're talking about the possibility, right? Okay, of taking a whole bunch of people off a of death row because they or or, or, life, or life sentences, right? Okay, now you have background as a lawyer. What's uh, uh, what area of law? Nothing to do with this. I was an employment lawyer for eight years, and in fact, that's what's that's what's led to the path of what I do now, being a diversity. Speaker, talker, mm -hmm. consultant is is that being an employment lawyer? That's that's my area of quote unquote expertise. So I've okay. never been a criminal lawyer. I I haven't practiced employment law for it's now thirteen years. So um, so yeah. So so this is part of my writing. This play involves a lot of research. It, you know, I've been working with the the uh, How long reporter. Have you been researching this. Oh, get, oh, you'll love this. You'll love this. As a playwright, you'll love this. They made, <laughs> you'll love this. They made a call. They, they, they sent out a call for playwrights locally. Okay. And apparently apparently they um, asked local theater people to recommend playwrights. Uh -huh. um, so about, oh, I think 15, 16, 17 of us got an email in August August 2015, mind you, the day before my grandmother's birthday. So that's when I can remember the day I got the email, August 13th, um, saying, could you, we're looking for someone to write this play. Uh, we're going to commission them. We're going to pay you. Uh, could you send us your resume and a play that has dealt with social justice issues? And um, as a friend of mine said, 
it was like the commission was was made for you. I mean, you know, your journalism background, your law background, and you write about, not always, but you mostly write about social justice issues or you have some issue. I mean, you've seen my Facebook post. I mean, Absolutely, I'm all yeah. over I'm all over social justice issues. I, I eat social justice issues for breakfast in the morning, you know. But, <laughs> I hope so, it's nutritious. Exactly. Not always delicious, but nutritious. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't even go near delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, But it does so, seem like yeah. it, was, it was written specifically for you. Yeah, it was, it's kind of, it was really weird. And, and so, yeah. So I didn't even find out. I was on my way to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was literally in the airport when I got the call on October 1st, I think it was, telling me that I got this commission. So I had to research, interview, write, rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. Oh, yeah. Rewrite. You're a playwright. (laughs) Since in just a few months. Yeah. Okay. Um, And I'm and I'm still doing rewrites. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you are. Uh, how long is the play? Full length? It is one hour. It's one act. Okay. And, and the way the process is, because StoryWorks, who's the organization that commissioned me to do it, right. um, I think the seventh or the eighth play that they've done. So... Um, Why did they pick that? They just did. Mike McGraw who's really, he's the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist who lives here in town. I mean, it's a, it's a case that's kind of haunted Kansas City. I mean, it's almost 30 years old. I mean, I, I, ironically, I didn't live here at the time. I'm, I'm fourth generation Kansas City, but I was a newspaper reporter in Louisville, Kentucky at the time this happened. I remember my mother telling me about it when we talked the day after it happened, how she heard, how she heard the explosion and she lived and she at the time lived miles away from where it took place. And that's pretty much how the city is. It's like the, it's almost like the city's Kennedy assassination or anybody who lived here at the time who was an adult can tell you pretty much where they were when it happened because you could hear it from miles and miles away. You could feel it. People's windows were, were taken out. So by, what, what exactly blew up? Let's let's get back to the incident and let's let's work through that up into where we are now with everybody tried in jail. What exactly blew up? It was a construction site. Um, it's a big highway here that, that's I-71, which runs through the city, and they were building it at the time and so the explosion happened i think three or four in the morning when the trailers the construction trailers were sitting there and um you know there's all kinds of theories about if this if the the explosives were stored properly because if you read the stories about it um really they shouldn't have exploded they, it's, it's, they were apparently less um, dangerous than fireworks, but because of the small area in which they were stored and the fire that took place, and it was two explosions, right. um, one that took place, a small one, and then the, the uh, firefighters went out, and then the second one that, that killed them all apparently instantly. What exactly was it that blew up? Was it a, a, a chemical compound of what was it, like ammonium nitrate, or it was? Um, I can't remember the actual name of the okay. of 
explosives. But I mean, if if you look at the stories, it wasn't anything that that's usually perceived as uh, particularly volatile. Okay. All right. So these five folks, how did they come under suspicion, and were there any other suspects? Funny that you should say that about the other suspects. Um, one of the things that was uncovered from the investigation, mainly done by journalists, is that two of the security guards were under under suspicion. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them had committed insurance fraud before, and he found um, witnesses that said that you know she, that one of them it was a, it was a female that she was paying somebody to set fire to her truck on the premises so that she could collect insurance from that. Okay. Um, and in terms of how they were picked, what happened was um, somehow or another, just because they all live in the neighborhood, all these folks who were convicted, they lived in this neighborhood. It's called the Marlboro neighborhood. Uh-huh. And it was, a, it's kind of a rough neighborhood. And so whenever something went down, these group of guys were who folks were like, well, they probably had something to do with it. Right. So, um, they the fire department raised fifty thousand dollars for a reward money for anybody who give information, and pretty much every snitch in the area, sure. including most of whom who were in prison or jail, they just named off one of these guys. Because one of the things that one of the things about this taking place nine years later, the trial was, from what I my understanding, people wanted closure. They were tired of this being an open case. I mean, this is one of the largest um, deaths in terms of that many firefighters, you know, dying at one time. And so uh, the city was just really kind of irritated. Well, firefighters have always had a highly respected place in the community and never more so than after 9-11. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, so whether that's true or not, fair or not, and that's been one of the difficulties about writing this play, because, you know, I don't and no one involved in this process wants to disrespect the legacy of the firefighters. We're not trying to upset the firefighters remaining family are the the local firefighters. Um, You know, ironically, the day I met Mike McGraw, the the reporter who's been working on these stories right. all working years. Working the Kansas City the, Star, yep. Yeah, the day I met him, and we, like, instantly hit it off. And, it, and one of the things that made it easy is I'm a former reporter, so there was reporter speak, you know. Gotcha. Yep. But the day that happened, there was a fire set by arson in Kansas City where two firefighters died. And so it's just been very kind of spooky how that's been the overlay of what we've been working on. Gotcha. Yeah. Did your research, did you manage to talk to the folks uh, in jail and get interviews with them? I only, I, I talked to Brian, I went to visit Brian Shepard three times in prison since he's the one who the play is centered around. Right. And he is um, a fascinating guy because he really, he's um, part Native American. He's, he's, Native American, and so he sort of found himself culturally and spiritually in prison, 
and just, I mean, is he's just really, I don't know, turned himself around in terms of being the kind of person who you really root for. I mean, you root for him to have a second chance um, outside of those walls because, I mean, he had a, an alcohol problem. He, you know, he took himself off of drugs and alcohol. He, he's, you know, sort of educated himself while he's in prison. He's, he's, he's this very peaceful, centered person, despite having been in prison for like 20 years. It's a hard place to turn yourself around in. Right, right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and to meet somebody who couldn't be nicer, who couldn't be, um, more grounded. Right. Um, I, I, again, I mean, and this isn't just me who thinks this, all the rest of us who've met him, there's not any bitterness I picked up on when I have visited him. And he, again, he has maintained consistently this entire time that he had nothing to do with it, that he was sleeping on his mother's couch when this happened. Well, you said that the, the evidence was largely through snitches. So, yeah, was there, no, was there any, any, was there any physical evidence? No physical evidence, no eyewitness evidence, none. So they, okay, all five of them were convicted purely upon hearsay? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, you know, here's the thing. I mean, and this is the thing I know as a lawyer. And so people go, oh, well, that's just circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is evidence. I mean, and that's the bad thing. It's not, it's, it's, sure, people can appreciate somebody saying, I saw it. But honestly, unless something is on videotape, most people who are convicted of something, it's circumstantial evidence. You know, sometimes it's eyewitness testimony, but rarely do you have somebody who you can go, okay, here it is, on videotape, they did it. That's a and scary situation. It is. It re- it is. And, and, and one of the things I'm in writing this play, so I had five characters, three real characters, Brian, his mother, and his lawyer, and then two made-up characters, prison guards, because that, because the whole thing I have had take place in a prison, because, you know, the director gave me full you know, carte blanche to tell the story how I wanted to tell it. It's challenging and it's very daunting to represent a story in a fair way, but make it theatrically compelling. Uh, you're talking to somebody who spent three years on a history play. I had the same exact problem. Do I write the play yeah. or do I write the transcript? Uh, mm, and yeah, 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 yeah. It's very hard to, uh, to to make that decision. So you're still rewriting, but the play's largely done. It doesn't it go up in a couple of weeks. No, it's, yeah, no, it's 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 done. I mean, it's done. It's just that part of the rehearsal process where it's like tweaking a line here, tweaking a line there. But no, gotcha. it's firmly done. Yeah, no, no, it's done. I it's the good thing. The good thing about uh, my background as both an attorney and even more as a former journalist is that I can write fast. I can put my, my philosophy going back to, you know, J school is you can edit crap. You can't edit a blank page. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to steal that. I should, I should add this real quick. No, One of the things that's really compelling about this play 
is that because it's about real life events, mm-hmm. um, it is there's a talk back after every every uh, performance, and not the the BS talkbacks that we playwrights go through about you know mm-hmm. rewriting your play, right. but a talkback where Mike McGraw's there, where hopefully we have people from the fire department there, you know, maybe some lawyers, some of the people who are involved in this case, right. so that the audience, any questions that come up from this, they can get some some grittiness, you know, some real information. Right, it's not about the play itself, it's more about the, exactly. the whole real situation. Has Brian seen it? Text well, no, because, I mean, he's in prison. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we, yeah, no. I mean, can, I mean, you, can you get him a copy? We are going to, I shouldn't say we, the producers are going to videotape it, and they will, they will show it to him. Okay, so. I'll be very interested to... So see his reaction yeah. to that yeah his attorney has looked over the play just to make sure that i didn't get anything legally wrong uh it's going through a um a legal a legal screening to make sure that i haven't libeled nobody in the play right. which i've done my best not to <laughs> that could be tricky so, yeah, yeah so i mean it is it's been the difference between making up something out of your head and making up something partly out of your head while using real life people and that's tricky yeah. that's really yeah. tricky yeah yeah so tell yeah. us where and when it goes up um, and then tell us the meaning of the title, Justice in the Embers. Well, you know, that's the title. I, I don't know if my um, director loves the title, um, but I like the title. And, you know, pretty much we stuck with my title. Uh, and all, I, I should for, for also tell you, I, we just found out that someone in San Francisco has been following the story. And they are flying me and the cast out to San Francisco for a week to do five performances of it in either March or April. Excellent. Isn't that crazy? I tell people, now my mother's impressed I'm a playwright. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's all about impressing mom. Exactly, exactly. Um, it goes up, it opens February 4th at the Living Room Theater here in town. All right. Yeah, I mean, we've had a set of rehearsals. Jenna, who's the director, who's out of San Francisco, she flies back tomorrow, so it's about to get very intense. And uh, life as I know it, life as I know it, is going to be, um, yeah, <laughs> hellaciously busy. Oh, I know what you're going to. You asked me. Let me answer the question. How did I come up with the title? Oh, well, right, to yeah. me, the play, the play is about justice. Uh-huh. and how people are literally still trying to find the truth and make sure that the truth surfaces and means something. And it's in the aftermath of this horrible tragedy that involved fire. So, you know, what's yeah. left after a fire but embers? And, you know, we're even in this play, we're poking around trying to find the justice in the embers. I like the title, actually. I think it's a great Thank title. you. Yeah. You are a former journalist. You are a, 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 a lawyer. And currently, you do many things. But one of the things I wanted to touch on, because um, your, your Skype handle is Diversity Diva, and you have written several books on diversity. You mm-hmm. give lectures. You um, give courses. Uh I do workshops. I do speeches. Yeah. I have a col- I have a column in the Kansas City Star that runs twice a month called the Diversity Diva. 
Uh-huh. And um, it's in the business section, and it's basically me writing columns about diversity issues in the workplace, because that's my specialty, so to speak. Right. Um, I have a part-time job as the diversity coordinator at a private grade school here in town, which is, it's good that it's a school that recognizes that you can't start too early in teaching kids how to appreciate uh, people who are different. Well, so, that's from the start. Exactly. Exactly. I totally agree. I, I mean, that's why we have so many things that are messed up now and people walking around thinking that they know stuff they don't know. Because you may never know it. So you can't know it now. So anyway, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Come on. Let's, let's, let's hear it. <laughs> It's, no, it's just, it, yeah, I, I get passionate about that because I, I look at our country right now mm-hmm. and I love how people say, oh, things are worse under Obama. And it's like, no, it may be, it may seem worse if you're white and you never had to deal with it. You, 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 you basically, this country for the last few years has basically dealt with people Blacks, gays, all different kinds of groups who have taken the path of not wanting to rock the boat too much for fear of how, you know, the the pushback and the backlash. Mm -hmm. And then when things got to a certain point, it's like, F it. If we don't have backlash anyway, then come on with it. Come on with it. You know, so I mean, I think. That's what's that's what's happening, and I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be bad before it really takes root. I mean, you know, I'm 51. I don't know. Even if I live to be 90, I I I'd like to I'd like to think that there will be advancements in understanding. I mean, I mean, I mean, I see it, but it's just not nearly as far along as people fool themselves that it is. Or we want to see it. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm 56. My childhood was the 60s. I remember the Watts riots on TV. I remember growing up in the Bronx where we had black neighborhoods, the projects, we had Greek neighborhoods, we had all this sort of stuff. And everybody basically kept to themselves, and it was not the most progressive right. time, all right? And then one day, you know, I woke up and I realized, my gosh, you know, we've got a president who's African-American. Uh-huh. And to me, in, you know, it's a, to me, it was a huge milestone, okay? But as you say, that's one thing, and we've got so, so far to go. And is it it really a milestone? I mean, if you really think about it, when you think about what he's had to deal with, because here's the the thing, and I'm just sticking to African-American. This could apply to other too. But here's the thing. It is hell to be the first anything. Absolutely. because, Because the first gives people the illusion that something has happened when all that's happened is, is that, Someone got something that they deserve despite bigotry, not because bigotry is over. And so the people who resent that first got something start crawling out of the woodworks. I mean, I've, I've heard things in the last eight years come out of the mouths of people and, and social media, the rise of social media going hand in hand with the Obama presidency. Some of the worst things I've heard from people are from folks who think that there's not saying something bad because I tell you, I realize defensiveness is the, is the enemy of understanding. 
And the problem is, is too many majority folk, whether we're talking whites, whether we're talking men, whether we're talking white men, right. Christian, you name it. Too many people are so defensive because they think that someone's gunning for them. And it's like, don't be upset at me because you've been demoted to equality. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, and I wish I can say I made that up. Somebody else said that. But I mean, I think that's what's really going on. And, right. and, and, and my thing is, if it's not as bad as you thought it was, if it's not as bad as you think it is, why are you concerned about being in my boat? Gotcha. There, you know? there, there are a lot of folks who see what's going on. They want it to be better. They really wish that things had progressed a heck of a lot better. And you look at it, especially on social media these days, yeah. when you see, you know, young African-Americans and, and getting in trouble with the law and getting murdered on, on video and the cops walking scot-free and you sit there and you think, this isn't much different. It's right. not much different at all. And we, you know, some of us just want it to be so much better, so much faster. And right. we realize we've got a ton of work yeah. ahead of us. All right. I'm, I am a historian by, by passion. Okay. Uh-huh. I read history because it is the the record of everything we could have done so much better. Right. All right. But the thing about history is, generally, we don't do major changes until we have no other choices, and our That's backs right. are against the wall. It would be nice if everybody got together right. in the room and said, "Let's fix the problem." Exactly right. That's exact. That's and that's what drives me nuts about particularly the racial tensions in America and the fact that so many whites basically are mad at blacks for speaking up because it's like, well, why are you, it's like, because things aren't better. I mean, stop acting like, because here's the thing, the people with the power could have fixed things Uh before the people without the power had to say something, you know? And I don't know if you saw my, my post yesterday on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and my friends know I bring it. I bring the real. And so I said, I'm getting so sick. I said, what I, I said it nicely. What I said is, for all the folks who, who, who use as a criticism and say, you blacks should be more like Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> Remember, Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested 29 times, right. protesting, and died by assassination. So if that's what you're wishing on me, right. okay, okay. But let's stop acting like, you know, people open the door of progress to Martin Luther King Jr. and said, have a seat. Let me get you some nice tea. And I mean, it's, that's just, you know, and again, I just get passionate about And, you know, you would Part think of it is the image that we are presented with time and time again. Peaceful resistance. You know, doing marches, doing, you know, it's it, taking the road of peace as opposed to the road of unrest. There was unrest back then, and that's the thing that people have pulled themselves. Look at the pictures. Google it. People were beaten. People had had dogs and water hoses. So when people say, well, they were peaceful back then, people are peaceful now. I mean, think about it. There have been two, quote, unquote, riots since we have had a Black Lives Matter, okay? There have been countless Black Lives Matters protests throughout this country. But there have only been two incidents that people would call a riot. And it's been now, we're talking since November 2014, 2014. So 
honestly, things aren't any different now than they were in the 60s. There's probably less violence from protest than there were in the 60s, but people have, have, have just really fooled themselves. And I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to shut up because I could go on about this all night, but I read something today that nailed it. Nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. One of the problems in America is too many white folks are concerned about being called racist uh-huh. instead of worrying about anti-racism. Because if you as a person go, well, I'm not a racist, then you're selfishly saying that my concern ends with me. Whereas if you say I'm anti-racism, it's bigger than who you are. And you're that's not the protecting same. yourself. You're talking about the actual, yes. Exactly. When it I doesn't read make that, a difference. Yeah, it was like a lightning bulb moment, like light, light bulb moment, like, whoa, yeah, that's yeah. it, that's totally it. Absolutely, I mean, you, so, you, you just basically said you were going to talk about this and then not talk about it because you could go on all night, but honestly, this is a conversation that we should be having more often in public. And I have on plenty, see, that's my problem too, is I get tired, you know, one of my biggest frustrations with Facebook is... There's a lot of folks that mean well, but if I'm the only person who you're having the conversation with through, through commenting on what I put on Facebook, because I'm like every other black person I know, we have the conversations all the time. We always have. We have them with each other. We have them with our white friends. We, you know, this is, I've gone to predominantly white schools and worked for predominantly white institutions my entire life. I went to to predominantly white private schools, you know, Catholic schools here in Kansas City. So, so this I get, I talk about it when it matters to me, but sometimes I get tired of talking. I mean, and then in my case, I work too. So, yes, I'm passionate about it, but that's probably the other reason I I've become a playwright because I love telling the stories some of which have to do with what I'm passionate about, Something, some of it, which is just silly bullshit. <laughs> Sometimes I just like getting lost in the world of silly bullshit. Oh, are you kidding me? We love silly bullshit. We're playwrights. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, that's why I, I, I love being a playwright, because it is a place to take it that that isn't always such a, you know, a heightened sense right. of, you know... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's more entertainment than it is a life lesson and something air quotes. Right. What made you write your first play? Let's 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 get back to the craft for a second. Oh, you know, I've 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 written fiction my entire life, but it's gone nowhere. I've written mystery novels, couldn't get them published. Wrote short stories, couldn't get them published. And I got on Twitter five years ago. Uh-huh. Twitter because I came across um, I came across a a group that tweeted writing opportunities. I thought, well, maybe I can find some writing opportunities um, through this. Came across a tweet that said that they were that this group in New York City was looking for a ten minute play written by black women. They were looking for 10-minute plays. And so I am not a theater person. I mean, I, it's funny. I've become one in the last five years. Right. But I was like, there are 10-minute plays? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Are there 10-minute plays? Right, right. So I was like, 
oh my God, that sounds fascinating. I can write something for 10 minutes. So I took a short story of mine and I turned it into a 10 minute play and it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. And they, it was awful and they rejected it. But then my second 10 minute play, which was something I said, well, let me just be, you know, original, what I want to write about. And I wrote a 10 minute play about Alzheimer's. And it was uh, picked to be in a local playwrights festival. And I was bit. I mean, I just, I was bit. And it was just, it was over. And, and, and back to that whole thing of wanting to make an impact. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, and I'm now on the board of the place that picked my play. So they, I mean, that's, it was, it's just, my life has gone from, I have nothing to do with theater except uh-huh. drive past one to get to Starbucks to, you know, everything I do outside of work seems to be theater related, including my friendships now, you know? Yeah, so, it's, it's, it kind of takes over your life if you let it. Oh, yeah. no. And so, um... Yeah, and so I started my my first, so then my second 10-minute piece was done in a festival at the Fringe Festival, and I got my first review, and it was positive, so then I only, so then I got not just bit, I, not, I got not just bit, I got, I got puffed up, like, ha <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. until I got, you know, the first not-so-good review, but anyway, I'm just kidding. And then I just started, I mean, I just started writing more pieces and longer pieces. And I mean, I mean, I've only been doing it for five years, but I think I've had plays in like five or six New York festivals. I've had uh, two of my plays produced in Philadelphia. Um, I've had 10 minute plays in Louisville and Houston and Connecticut and I've met all these players. I mean, I won this commission, you know, over like a bunch of people who have been writing a lot. I mean, it's just been, it, it has been this like magic carpet ride that I sometimes feel almost guilty about. It's like, because, you know, it's like, what the hell? Oh, don't even bother with the guilt, please. Well, I don't feel that. Yeah. I, you know, okay, that was me. That was that was my small bout of humility. That's what that. I do for a living. I tell them I'm a playwright and they just kind of look at me and half of them try and give me money for food. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, thank God, thank God for my diversity work because between my school job, diversity job, and my freelance, because hell, half the time being a playwright costs you money, you know. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> I know that quite well. Quite. <laughs> yeah. Well. But you, you also write books too. I mean, well, I've written, I've written three books. I, I have to admit, I have not even had a desire to re- write another nonfiction book since I've been writing plays, so I had three nonfiction books, and, and I mean, it's funny because people read at least two of those three books, and, and they're on my website, and, and none of, and people, I mean, that's how I get most of my business, I mean, either word of mouth, because someone's liked the work I've done, um, or they've heard of my book, or read my book, and I mean, that's, I mean, my first book, Working While Black, which led to my other two books. I mean, indirectly, that literally created a career for me that I've had for the last thirteen years. You found your niche, and really, you found yeah. the, you found the key to keeping yourself solid. Yeah, and so of course, I make a lot less money. You know, I mean, you know, but you're not going to theater if you're looking to make money. That's for sure. Between, between theater and diversity work, because di- diversity work is cyclical. I mean, when I'm hot, I'm hot, and when people like. 
there are like two times of the year when nobody cares in, in corporate America about anything other than their bottom line. And then the other half of the year, they're like, oh, we need somebody to come in because we realize how effed up we are. Da, 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 or, or they want to do the right thing because it's the right thing. But it, either way, I mean, so in totality, I make a lot less money than I do. I did as an attorney. But I'm I mean, I'm actually happy. I think and that's I what like counts, I, actually. And I mean, and, money's good, but you know, happiness is yeah. And and I feel honestly, this is this is what's funny because you think of law as a profession, you think of journalism and law as professions that are about impacting people. Mm. I think that with my diversity work and now my plays, I feel like I impact far more people than I did in those other two professions. I mean, I really do. I mean, maybe I mean I. First of all, if you can move somebody, if you can actually make them, if you can touch their heart rather than just their brain, I mean, my God, there's no, there's nothing like that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and I actually, I actually care about what I do, which I can't always say I cared about as an attorney or even as a journalist. I mean, I cared, I cared sporadically, let's put it that way. You know. The heart is where changes take place, not the brain. Okay, right. and playwriting is geared towards the heart first. Yep. All right. Because right. you're talking to people about people, and yep. plays are about people who make bad choices and try and get themselves out of it. And everybody's been there. Everybody knows that. All right. Uh, Diversity uh, work is solving problems and making things better. And a lot of people, yeah. again, you're hitting them in the heart because it's important. Oh, true. All right. It's true. Journalism can be dry. Journalism can be facts. And, you know, lawyering, even though half the people don't understand it in the first place, it's yeah. a whole different kind of language. And those are both brain things. So you well, and the, thing about, and, the thing, and the thing about law is everybody thinks that they are an effing lawyer. Yeah. And most law is about the very, um, you know, it's, it's like... If, it, if The Good Wife, for example, I used to watch The Good Wife. I don't watch much of anything more, most anymore except for BS. But if if they did a TV series on real-life lawyering, uh-huh. it would be a bunch of people sitting in office working on a computer. You would not see a bunch of conver- exciting conversations. You sure as hell wouldn't see people in depositions and courtrooms going, yes, ta-da, yeah. you know, in, in fact... I love the Ally McBeal um, um, cartoon I saw back when I practiced. It was it was one um, shot after another of Ally McBeal in a warehouse looking at paperwork. So it was like 18, 19 panels of Ally with paper in a warehouse. And then the last panel was a partner comes in and says, Ally, the case is settled. And she burst out in tears. Mm. And I was like, that is the practice of law. <laughs> that is as the practice of law. As, as, yeah. as they want us to think it, well, yeah, exactly. but you have to dramatize it. No, you do. You do. I mean, and it's, it's, and I mean, and I'm not, all, here's the thing. I'm, you know, my strengths are that I'm good with characters and dialogue. 
Uh-huh. Which is what's hilarious for like the, all the years I tried to write fiction because that was what I always got complimented on. So that's why that's how I jokingly say I became a playwright. I cut out the middleman that I wasn't good at. We well, just get rid of the narrative. That's all. Exactly. I'm. I you know I, I suck at that because this is where I'm a journalist. I'm like you know just get me to the bottom line. Yeah. Well, it's, it's you know. It's, People talking to people. Every line makes the next line possible, and a well-written play is an inevitability of circumstance. That's right. I don't give a shit about the wind whistling in the air and right. the branches scraping against the roof. As she, I don't care about that. Yeah. <laughs> and it showed. And it showed in my fiction that I didn't care about that. Give so. me details and dialogue. Don't bother telling me what they're wearing unless it's exactly important. Right. Yes. That's exactly. Uh, well, Michelle T. Johnson, uh, this has been so much fun. I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, oh. Thank you so very, not very as, much. Not as bad one on one as I sometimes appear on Facebook. So I'm glad we talked. Oh, you're because... a joy. You're an, you're an absolute joy. Tell us so. about your website and how can we follow you on Twitter. Um, my website is www.michelleT johnson.com and don't forget the tea or you might get somebody who does something for a living that isn't quite legal as i found out (laughs) Uh, and my handle on twitter is diva of diversity excellent thank you so very very much and uh good luck with the play okay you're not gonna need it